Welcome, friends, people for peace, pods of consciousness, planetary citizens, wherever you happen to be today, listening to local news in social artistry. I'm your host, Dick Dalton, and each week we have the pleasure of talking to someone who's building a more humane world from the inside out. And I have a returning guest. This fella hasn't been on the show for a couple of years now, but he's an old friend, Phil Johncock, from, now hailing from Ashland, Oregon. And uh, Phil, before you say anything, I just want to read a little bit about the author from a book that you have recently published called Small Town, Big Problem, Solutions for Homelessness. So here's a little introduction to Phil Johncock. Phil Johncock has helped thousands of U.S. nonprofits over the last 40 years to become fully sustainable. For example, in just five and a half months, he secured over $1 million in funding that can be used for three years for Ashland's winter shelter for the homeless. And it goes on and on, but uh, that's a... Uh, a nice uh, beginning, Phil. Uh, good to have you on the show again. We we had a chance to hang out for a little while uh, last month when I was out in Ashland, and uh, here we are. How's it going? Well, thank you. It was great to see you as well. Um, I'm doing great, and um, this is we have fresh air, which is nice uh, for a change here in Ashland, and uh, we're getting ready for the winter months. So this is a great topic. I love to talk about, you know, solutions for homelessness because, you know, there there's several hundred. Let me look at the statistic here. I just got 700 people experiencing or at the risk of homeless homelessness are killed every uh, year. They freeze to death. Oh my goodness! And, and so it's a it's a big issue something that I got started with when I first moved to Ashland and, and looked at what uh, was happening in the community and tried to understand where I could be of service. And um, so it's, uh, it's a great timing for this as well. So thank you for having me. Right. And, and I understand you just moved there in 2016. And uh, Ashland had been doing a, a winter shelter of sorts uh, for probably, what, five years before that? Yeah, uh, eight years, I think, is what they had with volunteers. But, you know, it was one of those things, Dick, that I, when I moved here, I decided to put down roots. And oh. I said, this is, this is my home. And so there was an event that both of us know dr jean houston that you know i was helping her put on a summer institute at, at southern oregon university and as we were having meetings i was talking to local residents and i and i asked this question what's the biggest problem that the community can't solve on its own i said if i if i'm going to be here i might as well put my energies towards towards helping in a, in a big way and and so the answer came back the same, uh, homelessness. Hmm. And it, there wasn't even a number two. It was just that number one was, was homelessness. So I didn't want to reinvent the wheel. I didn't want to just jump in and start, 
you know, I had no experience working with homeless people before. I had a lot of experience working with nonprofits, as you mentioned, and addressing it, uh, issues in education primarily, but also health and human services. So what do you do when you have no experience in a particular area? <laughs> You know, where do you start? So I, I, I did two things. I, I volunteered uh, at the local winter shelter because that was just starting in the in the, the fall of the winter of, of 2016. And and so then I, I, I more I got to know the program and more that I could see where I could bring my resource, my skill set to bear, you know, was it didn't show up initially, but when I, the more I spent time with the program, I saw there was this amazing group of volunteers. Mm-hmm. There were these couple of women that started a, a winter shelter like eight years before that. They just did it in one location. And then by the time I started, they had four different locations. So they had four nights a week. And in working with them, we realized one of the things, and this wasn't even my idea, I didn't even want to do this, uh, but one of the guests, um, a homeless man, Dale was his name, he kept coming up to me and he says, you know, you really need to do a survey of the people who are at the shelter. Oh. And, and I said, well, you know, okay, well, it wasn't my favorite thing to do, so, but I created with Dale I said, Dale, what do you, what, if you were to ask people, what do you think should go into a survey? And he says, well, you need to find out if they're a veteran, you need to find out male or female, you know, all these different things. And so I created this spreadsheet and I had a couple of volunteers that came in and, and I gave them the spreadsheet. So could you talk to people and get, you know, find out about them and fill out this spreadsheet? Well, they came back and they said, they're, their forms were blank. There was nothing on it. They said, well, people wouldn't share anything about, about themselves. You know, I don't know if they were embarrassed or, you know, whatever, but they, they wouldn't share. And, and so I was uh, about ready to give up on that. And then a lady by the name of Kaki Hoffman, and she was a retired school psychologist. Hmm. And Kaki, I asked, I said, Kaki, would you try or actually, I gave her the form at the same time I gave it to these two other ladies. And she came back and every single box was filled out. And she had interviewed some, I think we had 15 rows, you know, on a particular piece of paper. And I said, Kaki, I said, well, how did you do this? Nobody else, you know, <laughs> got any response. And, and, and she said, well, a couple things. I sat down. I got down to their level, because a lot of them were on mats on the floor. I didn't look them in the eye, I kind of looked off. Mm-hmm. I explained what the purpose was of doing the survey. And I told them a little bit about myself. You know, I'm a volunteer, we're trying to do this survey to try to maybe get some more funding or resources. And then she had a conversation with people. So Kaki ended up being our our interviewer, and and she interviewed. And what we discovered was that of the 
of the 57 people that she interviewed, 55% um, of them were disabled. Uh, we had 25% were women. Um, that had increased to 40% um, when we focused on safety as being really key. And, and, and that information that she was able to capture, I was able to use at meetings with the city council, with churches. With, they kept asking for this data from the survey that Kathy completed. And, and what I found was that the more I explained who are homeless neighbors, and I like, I like to use not so much homeless as, as I like to use unhoused neighbors. Mm -hmm. And because these are our neighbors, these are and homeless, they're not, uh, I don't like homeless, they're nameless, basically. Mm. And so, you know, getting to know Matt, and uh, Dale and um, Wally and Sally and, and you know these are our neighbors and the more the survey and I really thank uh, um, Dale for being so insistent about why this was important and once we got the information then the community was like a sponge it, mm -hmm. it like and, and more and more presentations and then people would ask this question, they would say, well, how can I help? How can, how can I be a service? So it, it got my mind thinking that I need to have a plan in place. I need to have something that if people are going to give money, they're going to give time, they're going to give something that I need to, you know, not just wait for that to happen and I need to figure it out. So I worked with um, Heidi Parker, who is the volunteer coordinator. And I said, Heidi, what's, what would you, what do you need help with? And she says, I want somebody to take over my job. I want a volunteer <laughs> coordinator. And so I said, okay, so I'll help you. So we created a job description, went through kind of uh, shadowing her, you know, for a couple of months. And, and then she gave me her list of Google contacts for like thousands of these volunteers in Ashland that had volunteered in the past for the winter shelter and she gave me the list. And I had this thought, Dick, that on the day she gave me the list and we had finished the shadowing and we had a job description, I said, I think that there's going to be a, a funding resource. There's gonna be something that, that comes available that pays for that volunteer coordinator position. Mm. And I, it was like one of these metaphysical or one of these sort of gut level feeling. And the very next day, Heidi gets a call from a local um, community action network that gets, gets funding and says, we have $20,000 that we'd like to give you. You're the only low barrier shelter, which means you can't, keep people out because of, you know, that they're inebriated mm -hmm. uh, or high. It's, it's no, no barrier to get in. And she says, you're the only one in, in, um, in this county and you have something you could use it for. Well, you know, it's like, okay, like we, <laughs> we have this volunteer coordinator position. And, um, and so it, so I ended up, Heidi kept 
pushing me to, to apply for her position. I said, I really don't want to do this, Heidi. I'm, I'm okay with volunteering, but I, but, but I realized that I, I needed to do more and there was more to be done. Hmm. And, uh, and once, so I got hired, I was paid 15 hours a week and I put in like 40, 40 to 70 hours, you know, every week. And then um, that's where the story, like you said at the beginning, um, we got a million dollars for three years of winter shelter. We expanded to seven nights a week. We found a single site location uh, for the shelter. And that data that Dale helped us, you know, get um, uh, our, and, and Khaki helped collect it, but Dale was the one that said, you really need to do this. Got me, you know, got us moving forward as a community to really begin to, um, and you, I like how you said more humane world. This was, it really built that sort of the humanity or that, you know, what is the human element of homelessness. So understanding that they were um, neighbors that just were unhoused. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so it, it gave the whole community, it humanized the whole thing of, of the people at the winter time. And then now we just got a hotel recently in a, in a, a single location. So we are a fully sustainable, completely uh, sustainable model. But it started with that getting to know um, know our guests mm-hmm. and, um, and then looking for uh, uh, solutions and best practices mm-hmm. we learned from other people so we didn't have to reinvent the wheel. And mm-hmm. I've learned that over 40 years is, is that if I'm new to something like homelessness or anything is that there's somebody else that's figured it out, you know, yeah. I don't need to reinvent the wheel, right? Mm-hmm. So I can, I can just do it. I just don't know what that is yet. Mm-hmm. So that's another thing is we focused on best practices. And in my book, I talk about, you know, a dignity on wheels, which is a shower program, um, laundry love, which is a laundry program. These, these sort of uh, best practices around the country and then best practices in case management. So that how do you not just give a handout, which would be food, which is important, they need to have that, but how do we give them a hand up? Mm-hmm. How do we, we get them and how do we get them on a path to self-sufficiency? So all of this was like totally at, at this time, you know, five years ago, I knew absolutely nothing about it mm-hmm. and have since sort of become a, uh, I like, I like one of the city people that quote, they calling me that Phil Johncock is a homeless rock star. And <laughs> kept saying, well, you know, it's amazing what you guys are doing with all these people. And I said, I said, well, you know, I, I kind of smiled and said, you know, I thank you. Um, and I want to give credit to all these best practices and the people who have come before me who know, um, you know, have figured it out. Yeah. Yeah. And in, I'm, I'm reading in the book that it's not uh, just in uh, uh, Ashland, Oregon, but there's other places that this is going to also have. I mean, you mentioned already some national organizations like Laundry Love and Dignity on Wheels. Uh, so there are places around the country that are accessing these best practices. 
So say, for instance, in Jefferson City or Columbia, they've already been doing things uh, with uh, the issue of people that don't have housing. And so it's not a matter of starting somewhere. Most everybody has already started somewhere. It, it takes somebody to kind of see the big picture and, and draw in these other partnerships. I think you like that word partnerships. It comes up a lot in your, uh, in your book. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I think that um, there are certain things that we can do to help out that are that each person can do individually. You know, I can volunteer, I can um, like buy a coffee for somebody on the street and sit down and talk to them. And I can, there's a lot of things that I can do as an individual to help with that humanizing stage. I have the three stages, humanize, the second stage is stabilize. And to stabilize and move to the third phase of self-actualizing, getting out of homelessness, the stability is created by the community. It's created by the efforts that the community make, um, and it requires a family. It, mm -hmm. it requires more people than just you and I. And this is where I think that um, we're helping our unhoused neighbors. We, we can um, uh, partner, we can, I, I think it's, it's as simple as volunteering and just starting out someplace because I didn't have any place to start, but then seeing the places where I could be of service. Mm -hmm. I could see where my skill set. you know, Heidi had this this Google um, form, a spreadsheet of, of all of the volunteers. And I said, oh, I can just help her, you know, do this, this, and this. I can, you know, kind of move this around. And, and so that made her life easier. Mm -hmm. And, but the, I, so I don't think um, to start out with that we have to have the clarity about what we do. Okay. I think it's just a matter of showing up, doing something, and then letting almost let let homelessness let let the problem reveal itself. And let's see, like Khaki couldn't spend the night as mm -hmm. a host, but she could interview people, right. and that was like like perfect for her. Mm -hmm. But she didn't start out with that. She she started out saying, oh, I can't volunteer because I can't spend the night. You know, I can't, can't do that. But um, she found her place. So I think to find the fit and find the place does require a little bit of time. And it, and it requires, um, you know, checking in with who's doing it. So, so we don't need to reinvent the wheel. We can, we can already work with those people who, who are doing something and we can fill the gaps and then we can see where we can be of service. Now, it, what I did was not the same as what you could do or mm -hmm. what anybody else right. could do. Um, and then we find find out that fit for ourselves. Yeah. So let me uh, reintroduce you. Phil Johncock, folks. Uh, by the way, thank you, folks, for tuning in to uh, KOPN, your community radio station here out of Columbia, Missouri. And... Uh, my guest today on Glocal News in Social Artistry is Phil Johncock. 
been a very successful grant writer over the years and even teaches a class in grant writing. And uh, Phil, one of the things that stood out in the early part of the book, there was a, a list of six essential services that, uh, that people need just to uh, stabilize. And, and let me read those. And what, uh, what I'm picturing is how some of these are so simple in pivoting them from uh, all the way down to number one on Maslow's scale to up much higher in just one thing. So here's the list. Essential services, health insurance, having an ID, having a phone, uh, access to SNAP uh, food stamp uh, card, having a mailbox, and having a bus pass or a means of transportation. Um, so, Phil, could you at least... I want you to talk about the guy that got a bus pass. <laughs> yeah, well, I was I was a friend of a lot of people when I had all these bus passes, and you know they would they would uh, um, always come up to me and say, "Phil, I need a bus pass. I need a bus pass." And you know, and they were going to to see their attorneys. They were going to see family. They were actually going to places like getting a shower, you know, and. Um, and mental health services and transportation. I mean, if you're if you're without a home, you're probably without a, a vehicle. Mm -hmm. I mean, there were some that had vehicles, but um, uh, helping them tra uh, uh, to, to transport themselves wherever they need to go. But I think that the I, I learned this model from a lady uh, professor out of Washington who who had this five levels of uh, self-sufficiency or they're, they're, the first level is like being in crisis mm -hmm. and then the, the highest level is thriving. This is getting into the, the Maslow's you know, self-actualization, but what she discovered was that somebody who's in, in crisis is not going to jump all the way up to the fifth level of um, thriving, that they're going to have to go through one level at a time to get to, to, to having a little more safety and a little stability and then get to, to the next level up. And I, I outline these levels in the book, but what we found was that bus passes, they, they moved from being in crisis and not having in, in transportation up to a level four self-sufficiency by just having a bus pass. Amazing. That, yeah. that, that was it. And, and then some of those other things that you, you mentioned, like, like health insurance, what we found was that people could move from in crisis. Now they could get dental work. Maybe they could get mental health support. Mm -hmm. but they can't get it if they don't have medical insurance to cover it because they don't have the money. So, so giving them, helping them get their, their health insurance then allowed them to move up in the health category and there's like 21 different categories and so what we discovered in those five essential and now they're nine there we have nine essential services including the stimulus checks oh. one oh. That, that we found to help because 69 percent of our guests did not have their stimulus checks or even know how to get theirs mm -hmm. and so 
Um, all of those categories, you, you know, and, and education is another one that, you know, they may start at, 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 at a crisis level and they're not going to make it up to a thriving level, but we can help them move up one or two levels. And so those essential services help them move up faster. Mm-hmm. And it also gives a sense of hope, mm-hmm. you know, and, and now we're giving them a hand up, right? We're, we're helping them become self-sufficient. And, um, and I want to thank Lee Matson who, who had those um, essential services identified already. And I just, again, it was a best practice. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, so I started using it and I said, I think we can help our folks, you know, get those those items and and Dick one of the interesting things was that um, there was this spark that would happen when one person would get sober or another one person would get their ID it would spark somebody else to say you know could I get my ID is it you know birth certificates you know people on the streets lose their belongings a lot mm-hmm. And so things that we take for granted, like birth certificates and IDs, you know, they're constantly losing those. And, um, but when they, and the same with the stimulus checks, we found that, that when people, one person got it, then they would tell another person. And then it was this ripple effect and people began to ask, you know, could I get, could I hire, uh, an attorney to help me, you know, deal with some of the issues. Because if you've been, you know, criminalized and you've been in the system, criminal justice system, you've you've got a record. You've got right. something that you need to work a credit, you know, with your finances. Mm-hmm. And um, and so um, giving people, it becomes contagious, <laughs> and it becomes something that just you see people light up. And they have a sense of hope for a lot, of, a lot of them for the first time in their lives. Hmm. Wonderful, wonderful. You use the word uh, pivoting, a basketball term, as I recall you saying. You you have to have a, a foundation on on one foot before you can pivot uh, a different direction. And and it seems like with COVID, uh, with the fire situation that's in our country right now, and and towns burning and. Uh, there's a lot of pivoting, if that's the right term. Maybe it's not quite the, the best term to use for this, but you've got some ideas for, for this. Well, and uh, what I observed, I mean, we had the Almeida fire September of um, 2020 that totally, and you have a friend, we have a mutual friend that lives in the local town of Talent. And the, the fire, I remember that the wind was so strong and it started you know, just outside of Ashland, it just went right north off, almost like up I-5. And uh, there's a little town of Talent, and then there's a little town of Phoenix before mm-hmm. you get to Medford, is a larger town. And the fire just burned so hot, and it burned, uh, so over 2,000 houses mm-hmm. were lost, and 35, over 3,500 people were suddenly displaced. So one moment they have a house, they, you know, they, they could, um, you know, sleep and, and, and they had a life and then the next moment it's gone. Mm -hmm. And so, so 
when fires or, or any sort of emergency happens, pivoting is that ability to plant and but also to move a direction, move in a, in a new direction. I mean, one of my favorite stories was I was actually in Grants Pass working with the homeless there and I saw in the newspaper around the beginning of the pandemic where this company that made these rafts, you know, for floating down the Rogue River mm-hmm. and, and whatever places, they pivoted to begin to make these um, oxygen masks for hospitals. Wow. You know, using the same equipment, hmm. you know. Um, another organization um, realized that this is in the state of Nevada, a client of mine, and they used to teach classes in financial awareness and, and financial stability. And, and they pivoted total to total online and, and created a volunteer financial network that was able to reach out and reach down into Clark County, Southern uh, Nevada, that's been hit really hard. I mean, a, a lot of us have been hard, but, but a lot of the casinos and the, that closed down their business. Um, so they were able to pivot what their organization did to identify the needs of the low to moderate income family members, people who were losing their homes, people who were in, in apartments, uh, being evicted, um, losing their jobs. And so they said, okay, well, what? how can we be of service? How we, we pivot, plant, pivot, go totally online. They, mm-hmm. I don't know if you've heard of, there's a system, I, platform I like called Zendesk. Mm-hmm. And Zendesk, uh, we, we trained, we had these platform navigators, then we trained volunteers. And so you could chat, somebody could, could go online and open a chat box, somebody could email, somebody could text, somebody could call, whatever they wanted to do. This organization suddenly had the capacity to talk to people and ask them, what do you need help with? Hmm. And what they what they discovered was that people who were struggling were low to moderate income family families had no spending plans they had and so they began they realized we can help you get the resources to help you with the eviction or or with this or that and um and if we oh by the way and we found the same thing with the stimulus checks for the homeless if we help people create a spending plan maybe they 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 will get out of this faster mm-hmm. and it worked and and that's <laughs> so so pivoting it is is really key and and i think that from you, you talk about grants i think that um what i've learned is that in emergencies the resources come fast and and furious, and they oftentimes do not come through the same structure as the traditional resources. Hmm. So, you know, there's three main funders uh, for grants, foundations, um, government agencies, and, and corporations. So hmm. those are the main three sources of grant funding. But what happened was that all this money from the federal money was like being pushed down to the states 
And, you know, how do you help your people with these evictions? How do you help help the landlords, you know, with um, uh, we have a landlord compensation fund to help them with people who can't can't pay for their rent or can't yeah. pay the rent. And um, and but the, a lot of the resources don't flow through the, the traditional grant portals, if you will. And um, and so identifying those. So I found out on a Thursday last before Thanksgiving um, about a what's called Project Turnkey, which was using federal uh, COVID money in the state of Oregon. The, the legislature set aside the money to um, purchase hotels uh, to help the homeless and help people who were impacted by the fire. So I found out about this on Facebook. And I found out about this, somebody was complaining about a local hotel, the service of a homeless person there, and said, boy, I can't wait until that hotel gets purchased by Project Turnkey. So I said, oh. Project Turnkey, what is that? You know, so I looked up, you know, looked it up. And the next day we had a meeting and, and I said, you know, they said, well, Phil, can you help us put together a proposal? And it was due Wednesday. So within 24 hours or 48 hours, we had put together a team and I pulled them together. So a grant writer is not always the person that does everything. And in fact, seldom does it do everything. And I did, I pulled together the team. I said, you know, uh, you know, some per one person said, um, you know, oh, well, I'll get the, the letters of support from the local community agencies. The other person said, well, I can find the statistics about um, what, how many houses are available before the pandemic and before the fire and how many now. And so as a team, we put together the proposal in, in 48 hours. We ended up getting funded a $2.55 million hotel now is a resource for this community. They've got people in it that are um, fire victims. So the opportunities and, and the abilities to pivot and do fast turnarounds uh, with, with new opportunities are there. And what are the resources that, that are available? American Rescue Plan is an example of there's so much out there. I think every, you know in, in, in Jefferson City, I think every place, every county, uh, every city, you know, um, citizens, uh, it's helpful to understand this because you can be thinking, what could we do to pivot, to help, and what are the problems? And, and identify those problems because the problems, the needs are, are probably not um, on the national news. I mean, they mm -hmm. might be to some degree. But, but how people are impacted and what problems they have. I mean, there's probably people who are close to being homeless now, maybe losing their place. And um, it's, uh, and, and seniors and um, all kinds of, of people that are, are um, marginalized and um, vulnerable right now. And the more that we can, as a, a family, just like the homelessness stability piece to, to work as a community, the more that we can do the same thing with fires and pandemics to identify the need, identify the problem, 
and then look at best practices so we don't have to reinvent the wheel. And then we're in a good place because the resources are like, it's like, hey, we're here. We've got money for you. you got, you know, we've got resources for you. And then it's like we're all, you know. And um, yeah. uh, we're so busy with everything. But that's what that's one of the focuses of my class, um, the Grant Pro 101. And, and what my focus is, in addition to homelessness, is, is how do, how do we as communities um, find out what the needs are, what the problems are, and then how do we find best practices and how to, and sometimes it's just expanding what we're already doing, but um, there's a lot more resources that, um, that are out there. And so the money has to be spent. So you might as well have it go to an idea that, you know, program that you want and mm-hmm. that you are supporting and sometimes just you making that connection and um, is, is all that's needed. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. Uh, let me introduce you one more time, Phil. we got about uh, 20 minutes here in the show. And, and friends, uh, thanks again for tuning in to Glocal News and Social Artistry here on KOPN, your community radio station. Uh, I'm Dick Dalton, the host uh, each week, and my guest today is Phil Johncock, who's uh, moved to Ashland, Oregon from being over in uh, Reno area uh, before that, and before that, probably Michigan. I don't know where all you come from, Phil. That is not our story today, but uh, once you settled there, you brought a skill set that, uh, well, that phrase itself, uh, skill set, is... Uh, kind of an important uh, thing to think about because we all have certain skills but maybe we haven't evaluated our skill set and uh, I'd like it if you could uh, segue into you already talked about khaki and different ones that have had different skills to migrate to uh, jobs that fit that can you Bring this into, I think, maybe even a class that you're either proposing or, or about to start in this area. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you. Um, I think that skill set and, and also strengths, you know, what are our strengths? Um, uh, and starting with what those strengths and starting with identifying those. And sometimes we can help each other because we don't always see our strengths, mm-hmm. you know. And... Um, you know, like if you talk to my friends, they they would say, you know, he's very organized. He he um, uh, he can respond quickly. I can respond very quickly because I've, I've been online. Uh, my first online class in grant writing was 1997. Wow. And, um, I wanted to live in um, just outside of uh, Lake Louise and Banff National Park and still teach my classes uh, to people uh, in, um, in Nevada, but I didn't want to travel. That was like too far to go, right, to, to, to do that. So um, I, I, I said, well, how about if we develop this online class? Well, there was no online platforms. There wasn't Zoom. I mean, we didn't have that technology. The university system in Nevada did not even have an online platform. There were no online classes. So 
I, I created it from scratch. I created, I hired a guy to help teach, teach me front page and I created a web page. And, um, and so that's how I got started online before the universities and colleges and everybody had, had that technology. Now the technology is much uh, better. I think the pandemic has, has more people using Zoom, more, more people comfortable with online education. So what I'm doing now that is sort of the same thing I started doing back in 1997 was having an online class where uh, a person could go through, and in, in this case, it's just in two weeks. You don't need two years. You don't need two semesters. It's just in two weeks. You can learn from a 9 to, nine to 12 Pacific time, uh, Monday through Friday. So you, and we have guest speakers and we, we go through, but you leave with an actual skill set different and you might have some skills leading into it but but you're going to develop you're going to know the number one grant writing format in the world you're going to know how to find those funders you're going to know how to create a project you're going to know how to create identify the needs in the community and be able to write it up in a way that somebody would look at your proposal and say, yes, I want, you know, that, that will work. And, and people, and, and we do peer, peer editing, you know, so you get to read other people's proposals. You also get to get critique. And so over, uh, you know, since, since uh, I started in 1993, developing these uh, easy to learn modules that would uh, would leave people with a, a written proposal that then you could dick if you wanted to turn around and turn that in you could oh. submit that proposal for funding mm -hmm. and 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 I have you know people who are successful you know right away with with getting the money so what we do is walk you through the steps that a grant professional I wish I would have known you know, when I started, I had no idea. I had a, a master's degree. The next day I got a call from the local, Seagram Kaufman called me from the local community college and said, Phil, would you write this grant, federal grant? And I said, well, thanks, Seagram. I appreciate you thinking about me. I don't have any experience writing a, a proposal, but you don't have to be a good writer. All you have to do is know how to answer certain questions, certain, and and it's more technical writing, and it's like like just just giving short. It's almost like Twitter, you know. You just do a quick, <laughs> 140. It used to be 140 characters, right? You know, so you so you just just give give the funder what they want to hear. You learn that funders like like programs that are timely you know, that have a timely solution to, mm -hmm. you know, addressing the pandemic recovery is one example of that. They want uh, funders like programs that are uh, unique or original. And so this is where you don't have to have the original idea, but you can be original by bringing the best practice from another community to your community. Mm -hmm. That's how you're original. Ah. And, mm -hmm. and then you can also do compelling, 
this is where nothing is more compelling than people who have been marginalized and people who are who need a hand up rather than a handout and there's nothing more compelling than here here's a solution and then uh, that solve a big problem is the is the fourth area that funders like to see so we go through that we spend a lot of time in in groups looking at sample proposals and you you leave after two weeks with a a proposal that's been critiqued by your peers mm-hmm. um and I, I I found that I got tired, Dick, after you know thousands of proposals, giving the same feedback, and I said, well, I think people, you know, students can give each other feedback just as well as I can, <laughs> and so I just got to give them this checklist um, and this the things to look for, you know, when, in that section where the agency is trying to introduce themselves. You got to have something about credibility. You know, in the problem statement, you want to have like a, a statistic, national statistic, like I, I shared with how many people freeze to death yeah. every year. And then drilling it down into the local would be an example of that was Kelly, who who froze just outside of the homeless shelter because we couldn't get him in because the fire marshal said you can you can only have so many people in. Yeah. So so Kelly died. We named the shelter after him, so it's a Kelly shelter. Oh. And and we began to to find a way to um, to really support him and memorialize him in a way that we think that he, he would have liked. But it's also led to some other policy changes as well. And uh, so in that in this course, I mean I'm really excited because you don't have to have a degree. I know you have a degree and and I have a master's, but I have two master's degrees, but but it's really more about learning a skill mm-hmm. and um, that you can then turn around and get money for different different um, causes and and helping out your community. Or if you know of nonprofits, a lot of you may be on boards, you know, uh, board of directors. And, mm-hmm. and this is is great because we're in a time too where there's so many people that are unemployed. We have so many people that um, may need to work from home for a while, you know. So this is a skill that you could do um, at home, and then it pays well. It, it's really a high-paying position. The average grant writer is making seventy-two thousand, you know, a year, mm-hmm. and so you won't start there. But you, you, if you're successful and you have a successful you know, grant, and you'll get that grant in the first one you submit. Then people um, will will want want you around, right? You know, mm-hmm, you're, right. You're, but that's a skill that we want to have. Now, I had this skill that helped here in Ashland. I, I didn't advertise it and go around uh, and and say, "Hey, I've got this skill." But um, I think it's it's I've learned um, over 40 years that if there's one skill that would help make a difference for you or for anybody in a community, it would be this, um, what the the nine basic skills that go into uh, being a grant professional, and it's something that you don't need two years, (laughs) you don't need two two semesters even, you just need two weeks. And Mm -hmm. so that Grant Pro 101 
um, and that's available. Do you want me to give the URL for that? That'd be great. Sure. Yeah, please. Yeah, is uh, Grants Academy, so it's Grants, plural, grantsacademy.us, and it's Grant Pro 101. It starts, um, the next class is September 13th, hmm. so it goes the week of the 13th and then the week of the 20th for five days, and um, and and I'm I'm hoping that we can we can start addressing some of those um, problems from fires and pandemic and from um, uh, people that have been impacted and help help communities get out of this pandemic faster. So let me repeat: uh, grantsacademy.us, and then it's grant grants plural pro 101. Okay. Uh, and a grant a grant is singular, so Grant Pro 101 is okay. the course. But if you go to GrantsAcademy.us, there's only one thing there on the on the page. Okay. And that is information about this, and you get, you know, the FAQs, you know, about um, what's this, what what are the topics, um, uh, what we have an a you know 100% satisfaction guarantee. Uh, will I be able to write a successful grant afterwards? And do I have to have written uh, um, a grant proposal? No, like me, I didn't. I didn't have any experience in it. I was willing to take a risk. Seagram took a risk in me, asking me. I I took a hundred hours to learn how to write that first first grant, Dick. But but uh, you don't have to take that much time, you know, doing it. It's it's that's where. We make. If I would have had this, it, uh, I could have done that first grant in just like this um, turnaround in less than forty-eight hours. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, uh, also, we want to let listeners know that uh, they can find you personally on the web, uh, philjohncock.com, Right? Yeah. Pretty simple. Yeah. I think the spelling of the name is just like it sounds. Uh, are you Phil or Philip when they go online? Um, I've been both, but um, <laughs> uh, my mom would say Philip, but uh, uh, but Phil with uh, you know shortened Phil Johncock just as it sounds dot com. Yeah. Okay, uh, there was this other area that uh, kind of fits with all of this in some ways. There's a a dot org in Oregon called Home Share Oregon dot org. And you mentioned about not having to be original necessarily, but uh, I'm wondering, uh, I'm going to look up and see if there's a homesharemissouri.org. I don't know that there is. And uh, th this idea was brand new to me. So uh, I've heard of Airbnb, but I've never heard of homeshareoregon.org. Uh, there's only a slight similarity, but could you just give us a taste of what we might find if we go to homeshareoregon.org. Uh, home yeah, the way it's explained to me is like a dating site, you know, and it's and it like it, it connects the date is connecting homeowners who have a room to share with renters. And, and so the online, uh, that's, that's what Homeshare Oregon does for the state of um, Oregon. I didn't even realize that was, you know, it existed until just recently. 
but home share is a new concept and I'm I'm a firm believer in before we reinvent the wheel before we try something new again that original the two definitions of, of original is is one is is that we've we've created something new that's never been done and the other is that we bring something that's been done a best practice from someplace else to our community so it's original for us mm-hmm. here and now and uh, so this home share model is something that now is just starting in oregon there are supposedly, according to the last census, 1.5 million homes with rooms that could be shared. Okay. Now that's that's a solution to the homeless problem. That we don't have that many homeless people in Oregon. We have quite a few, but that would address it. So it's taking this old successful model with you know with having a room at the house and we would you know give it maybe to a foreign exchange student or we would have our kids would come back home and live with us for a while you Mm -hmm. know or we'd have a relative stay for a while you know we we've done this in the past so it's not a new concept but what's new about it is that it's beginning to i mean if we were able to uh identify those vacant rooms and then create a process and then we have to have safety you've got to have legal issues and all of those have to be addressed but that this website uses a platform called silvernest and silvernest.com you could also go there it's a for-profit business that is that dating site Hmm. you have but um i'm always looking at best practices and home share is one of those practices that i just found out about recently and I think we're in a unique position find out about it and then if it you could bring it to your state that would that would be great and and I, I think that would be a, an excellent resource if somebody you know wanted to put that that's what happened here in 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 Oregon was that one particular developer said you know got this idea and and then they created this online website and they mm-hmm. created this and um, the, the, this um, approach to uh, educating the uh, community about the need for it and trying to identify, we're in the process right now, is how can we find out who are the seniors that are the homeowners that um, out there and who are the homeowners that have a room that maybe has like a separate access you know, so you have a little independence, you know, mm-hmm. like I, I have, a, I'm right now uh, talking to you from a cottage. Well, I have my own door, right? My own access. I've got my own kitchenette, kitchen. I got my own bathroom and shower. You know, so those are sort of like the the, the low hanging fruit or the the first level that we're kind of looking at. Let's identify those, and then and then let's continue and let's look at at uh, rooms rooms that we have to share, and then. Um, I don't think it's good to just go out and start inviting homeless people to live with you. I think that's probably, you know, setting yourself up for something pretty major to happen. Uh-huh. I think again, if we begin to work together, because we've we've discovered this one uh, particular nonprofit called Rogue Retreat has discovered that sometimes people who have addictions and have mental health issues have to be in recovery for a while. Mm-hmm. And that they're not always, I mean, those essential services that you mentioned, 
essential services for somebody for a potent that's coming off the street that's that's potentially a, a person who could be a, a roommate you know they need to have their their primary care physician they have to have their sponsor they have to have their um, uh, all of the support system needs to come with them mm-hmm. and so we need to be giving people support systems so that that when we find these rooms mm-hmm. and they get placed into it that they're successful we don't want to set anybody up for failure we don't want to set whether it's a homeless person whether right. it's a, a homeowner nobody so um, so I think that's where as a community that um, we're just now figuring that out and and you know if we talk again next year at this time it'll be you know yeah this is what we figured out works this is what doesn't work and you know we're constantly uh, talking to people who do this and have been successful there's a great program in San Francisco called HIP housing HIP HIP housing and they have a whole series of home share um, professionals that, mm-hmm. that help help the people. Sixty uh, or over fifty percent of the homes are owned by seniors, and twenty-five percent of the people staying there as renters are seniors too. So there's oh, wow. a, so it's a big senior uh, program, uh, program, and uh, we're finding that seniors. Um, more and more seniors are becoming homeless. And so that's a, a good population to focus on for, for home sharing. And, and I'm really excited. Thank you for your interest in this. And uh, homeshareoregon.org. And then also the, the silvernest.com. And then even just Google home share mm-hmm. uh, best practices or home share models. And then you can see, you know, see what's out there. But thanks for your interest in that. Well, Phil, our hour has slipped away. My goodness, I think we've packed it. Phil Johncock, <laughs> friend, and uh, I think you're called something like a genius uh, completer because you complete projects that you start on, and uh, people can find you on the web and at LinkedIn, Phil Johncock, and we've given a, a couple of other URLs already. We're out of time. Thank you so much, Phil. Thank you for this opportunity. I'm going to do a little close here real quick. Uh, Friends, remember, wherever you are, that is your world. Please leave your world cleaner, more peaceful, and more loving than you found it, because if it is to be, it is up to us. Take care and talk to you soon.